This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. Today I spoke with Lynn Evans. We talked about uh, Qigong, <clears throat> Transcendental Meditation, Waking Down in Mutuality, and the work she's done with Samuel Bonder. How interpersonal relationships uh, within a community of spiritual practitioners can be a crucible for awakening. How uh, body work, like deep tissue massage, can uh, unlock trauma that's held within the body and uh, expand it and open it up. And also the importance of putting these inarticulate feelings of emotions and bodily sensations into words and how that can kind of lubricate the flow in and out um, with, uh, with these things and, uh, and enable the, the healing. And uh, also the non-separation between the sacred and profane in our lives and our personal and transpersonal identities uh, and many more things. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Lynn Evans, thanks very much for uh, joining me and uh, kindly sharing your personal journey of um, holistic transformation and spiritual practice. Um, Pleasure. And we, uh, we've never met in person, but we connected uh, you know, via email and uh, a little bit on Zoom um the last year or so um mm -hmm. and and uh <clears throat> we connected around um this thing called waking down um uh, initially although that's not you know everything that that you and i are mutually interested in um and uh you know we'll probably talk with i'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit but uh just so people know uh waking down is um, this sort of simultaneous, uh, you know, quite often we talk in spiritual practice about waking up, um, but there's also this descending current that comes down as well. So there's a waking up and there's a waking down. Uh, so waking down doesn't mean just waking down, it means waking up and down. Um, but we can, we'll explore that uh, later for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so when did you... Uh, first get get into uh, spiritual practice and um that kind of thing yeah coughing's fine <laughs> this is a real conversation i'm not going to edit out every cough that's for sure <clears throat> yeah uh, so i suppose even as a child i had a very um natural sense of the mystical of the sacred and ordinary experience um I always felt very, um, very connected to the magic that's in the ordinary. I used to spend hours sort of gazing out in the darkness into my back garden at the snow or out into nature and always had that, um, I suppose like most children do, that, you know, sense of, um, of intrigue and of enchantment and adventure that you know, wasn't sort of outside anything that was here, not sort of confined to fairy tales or otherworldly experience, but that was, you know, here and now in the in the living presence and in the 
real moments of uh, of all of our lives. I used to um, explore that through um, everything that I could get my hands on as I started um, growing up, uh, to do with the mysteries, the uh, the occult, the earth religions, druidry. You know, I was always uh, really drawn to all of those things, and um, as I got older, that became a more became a more earnest pursuit. Um, and I started to move towards, I guess, what I would talk about, would have talked about then as more um, more serious and more mature um, spiritual practice. And I guess the, the main part of that um, shift was um, in around about um, early 2000 when I um got involved with a, a local teacher who was teaching um, Qigong um, and uh, offering um, teaching in meditation. Uh, he was a former TM teacher um, and had sort of evolved that through his experience into um, sound and light meditation, which was his primary practice. So I was uh, initiated into sound and light, you know, whatever tradition lineage that might have come from uh made a few oaths that i didn't keep but um you know took on this um this quite uh serious and intensive meditation practice sometimes um regularly meditating for two or three hours a day uh, sometimes for much longer periods um either on my own or with uh with other groups of people um, and also um, sort of interspersing other uh, practices, Taoist practices, um, in the pursuit of uh, my idea then of what uh, spiritual enlightenment and, and awakening was all about. So this sort of first mentor you encountered it was uh, yeah. was teaching you qigong and transcendental meditation. Is that is yeah? That so what I heard you say. Yeah. So it. it started in transcendental meditation so there was meditation on mantra um, and then we went on to the um uh, what they called the the um the words of power which is a meditation that i really enjoyed and then after about a year there was an init initiation into sound and light meditation which is um uh, an energy transmission into the crown that um enables you to see light inside your head and to Hear a um, hear a sound current, and I now, um, at least as part of my practice, continue to meditate on those. Yeah. Okay. So, um, just to explore transcendental meditation a little bit more uh, for people that might not have come across it. Um, <clears throat> uh, so it was made famous by the the Beatles practicing it with Maharishi. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a very very well established um, organization uh, across the world, mm -hmm. and lots of famous people do it, including David Lynch, the uh, film director, and they um, also did all those experiments where people meditated in cities and uh, saw it and looked at the crime statistics and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, and I think they even sent people into war zones. Uh, they did to do the same, uh, which is uh, really interesting. Um, 
approach to warfare. <laughs> um, um, so I think the name transcendental meditation uh so we, we you know just going back to what i was talking about this morning about waking up and waking down uh so i mean i i don't know uh loads and loads about transcendental meditation um my dad has actually initiated into it which is pretty surprising uh uh and he's been doing transcendental meditation every day for i think like 45 maybe 50 years um but you never would have thought that to look at him that he he's the kind of guy to do this kind of meditation so it's it's pretty pretty been a pretty interesting thing um so it, is transcendental meditation all about transcending uh it was that name slightly uh, misleading um, so i found it as well a transcendental um experience it's a very easy meditation because the mantra is creating a sort of cradle um, for the mind. Uh, the mantra um, also, um, you know, will have its own energy and power that's been vested in it, uh, either by people using these mantras or however, uh, you know, you might um, believe that, uh, that, that that works. There's a, a resonance in the, um, in the Sanskrit or whatever words that you're um, repeating. Uh, to me, it was a very experiential meditation, you know, quite easy to, you know, be sort of all um, consuming um, a, a sort of an experience in itself um, that the people that I um, know who are uh, still practicing that kind of meditation are very much of the, you know, the up and out um, orientation and seeking um, bliss, uh, well-being, and sort of um, more cosmic experiences. Um, and I said that that was pretty much my experience. I mean, when I say that it was transcendental meditation, I wasn't um, meditating within that formal organisation. So the, the mentor that I was working with had trained originally as a TM teacher, but wasn't. Um, formally working at that time as, uh, as part of TM. Uh, but certainly, you know, he was very influenced by uh, the Beatles and the spirit of the 60s and, um, you know, cosmic consciousness. And, you know, I really enjoyed that. I benefited from it. I thought it was fun. Uh, but in the end, um, it, it wasn't really my natural orientation in practice. And I sort of grew out and beyond it. And I guess I felt that it was only, that I was being presented with only half the story and I could intuit very strongly that, that there, was, there was more um, and that more was, in the, was here in the real and that that's where my, my more mature and, and to me my more real spiritual exploration uh, really began. Okay, yeah. Um... And was um, and the qigong stuff you were learning. Um, so that how did that complement the meditation practice you were doing? So I mean, qi, qigong's a, a bit more of a um, sort of subtle energy embodied practice. Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, a 
Chinese um, kind of a, an internal martial art. I think it's actually a branch of Tai Chi, but I could be um, wrong about that. But it's gentle uh, movement, the purpose of which is to um, to cultivate and to circulate um, life force energy and chi um, sort of through the um, through the conduit of the body. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, it helped me to um, integrate some of the experiences that I was having with the meditation and sort of kept me focused on um, being present here in the body and just the, uh, the pleasure of the movement and the, uh, the, the physical um, sensation of the energy I found that I could I could feel and experience that in quite a um, in quite a physical, quite a tangible way. Uh, so I found that really enjoyable. You know, it, it's hard to say that you know practice X had benefit Y, uh, but overall, in the sort of totality of practice, I definitely in, enjoyed that and felt it was beneficial as part of the mix. Yeah. So, well, some of those, uh, if you know, when you're doing a meditation practice like transcendental meditation, you might have these <clears throat> sort of, uh, as you were saying, blissful um, feelings that are kind of uh, energetic feelings in your body, but there's an emotional tone to it. And then also a kind of, I don't know, like a, a, a an illumination of your mind. Um but that's when you're sitting still. <clears throat> and uh, I think what's interesting about complementing that with Qigong is that Qigong is kind of a continuity of those experiences, but whilst moving. But it, it's, a, yeah. it's a kind of uh, stepping stone from sitting on a cushion to full-blown activity, you know, tidying the house and driving driving the kids around or whatever um yeah and you know to, to maintain that kind of meditative presence whilst uh whatever you know working in the garden or shopping or um anything you know working online or whatever it might be is ultimately possible but it's quite nice to have i mean to, to achieve that it's quite good to have some stepping stones that kind of can ladder you from the sitting on the cushion to that full-blown immersion in activity and and it's yeah i think it's a good idea to have some kind of activity that's halfway there that can help transmit that peace and bliss and stuff that you get from meditation in in off the cushion um yeah i like that description so it, you know i guess you could describe qigong and systems like that as kind of a moving meditation and you know through that you can experience bringing that meditative practice alive in the physicality of everyday life and you know taking that beyond a sort of qigong practice into you know walking meditations and uh being in nature and those kind of things and you know i can i can definitely see that could be an interface into bringing that alive into the ordinary rituals and uh of our of our ordinary lives yeah walking meditation is another good example of it very very slow mm -hmm. walking um 
and I mean, it's quite, quite, I think it's important to bring that up because the, the other, the alternative might be a very sharp distinction between your sitting meditation practice and then your normal life. You kind of got the time you spend on the cushion when you're all blissed out and, you know, in harmony with the cosmos and then you you get up off your cushion and then suddenly that's you just you lose all of that because you go straight to the other extreme of intense act, activity and worldly out in the world i totally agree with you you know and, and in the end if you if you're not if you if you are just compartmentalizing your practice like that so here's my spiritual life and here's my work life and here's my family life and you're having those blissful experiences on the mat and then you know you're going into the rest of your life and sort of leaving those uh in the little temple of uh of light that you've created around your meditation cushion and you know then so what you know what is the benefit of those experiences and, it, and it's only really when you're able to integrate spirituality into and as every single aspect of your of your life where you know where living your life becomes a practice, it becomes a meditation, it becomes a prayer. You know that to me is the uh, is the ultimate goal. If you can if you can put it like that, you know the ultimate approach. Cool. Um, I think probably the last thing to flag there is that it, it's just an ongoing process. There's no like you know it's, it just gets deeper and deeper. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. Cool. Okay, so with uh, transcendental meditation, you've been doing that, and then you're sort of bumping up a little bit against the limitations of that particular model. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that's that's not an uncommon experience with transcendental meditation. For what I understand, they're they're, they're um, mm. <clears throat> a little bit, um, sometimes a bit cliquey if that's the right word and they don't really like people doing things outside of that tradition because they're kind of mm -hmm. understandably you know we've, we want to keep what they've got really nice and pure and clean and they're kind of a bit worried maybe germaphobic <laughs> from <laughs> some of the other traditions in you know uh polluting their pure system so you know so i could understand that but i think some people do find it limitation that and then they want to see what else is out there so then where, where did that take you so after i had the initiation into um sound and light <clears throat> i got really um serious about that um practice for a while but it was a very um it was a that was a really um transformative phase it, it blew a lot of stuff out um for me and one of the things that was cleared out of that was that sort of primary relationship really with that uh, mentor that I've been uh, working really closely with um, so I sort of found myself in this um, small town with no um, other spiritual connections with no um, you know struggling for, for peers for leadership and to take that next step um, and he had start, started working with a uh, waiting down teacher um, and I contacted that teacher and said look you know um, I'm earnest in my practice and um, is there somebody that you could recommend to me that I could um, start working with uh, and he recommended a, a 
fabulous um, teacher called uh, Jen Nail uh, that I started working with really um, intensively uh, and over a period of a, a couple of years, and that just uh, put my practice into a um, into a totally new uh, dimension. So where where was this teacher located? Were they in the in the UK or America or how did you? The Waking Down teacher. Uh, she was um, she's located in the Bay Area um, in San Francisco in the, in the USA. Yeah. So we used to. It was before the days of uh, of Zoom calls. It was pretty early in the uh, in the two thousand. So we used to just do analog phone calls uh, uh, an hour a. A, a week or every couple of weeks and just really got into a very um, deep exploration and it really was an exploration because although um, waking down obviously comes with a, a set of uh, precepts there is a core um, teaching waking down is a is a way it's not just uh, random individuals showing up and uh, exploring their own experience you know uh, one of the of the core parts of that certainly from my experience is that you know the teacher is not really leading or guiding you the teacher's kind of showing up and uh, and you're doing you're doing the work so you know you'll come and you know uh, it's your job to talk about what's going on you know what your realizations are what kind of materials you want to work with and that person's like a a companion or a guide who's that that bit further along um, the journey than you and can start to reflect things back to you and hold things up for you to to have a look at, to have a look at and you know really get into that deep exploration together. One of the things I really appreciated about waking down, as well as one of the things that I found a bit frustrating, was that you know no one's going to do the work for you. There's no yeah. guidebook. You know, it's just you and the teacher. <clears throat> And you know, let's get on with it. Yeah, with well, that, um, it's it, that uh, probably the concept uh, there of a teacher is more of a, of a facilitator <clears throat> mm-hmm. than as a guru, you know. Or, um, and uh, it's interesting, kind of parallel with um, you know the sort of transition from childhood to. Um, you know, becoming an adult. Yeah. That you know, when you're a child, uh, well, I we I home edu- home educate my children, so have a slightly different approach. But um, in, in mainstream education, being a child is mainly about teachers telling you stuff, um, and they they're kind of they do the heavy lifting for you, so to speak, um, and then you have this rude awakening where you become an adult and suddenly there aren't people out there. Oh, and also your parents do that for you as well. But then when you leave the nest, so to speak, um, you have to fend for yourself. And, and then suddenly there's this 180 flip where people are not going to do things for you anymore uh, to the same degree that they have done. And uh, the responsibility falls more on your shoulders. And, uh, and I, th- I think I, you can see a parallel with s- spiritual traditions or teachings that are very teacher focused. And then ones where there's a bit more of what we might call mutuality, where the teacher is b- 
bit more of a facilitator and they are not going to do all the heavy lifting for the student um mm -hmm. and <coughs> i think there's that i don't know whether i mean it, you know that's it's an open inquiry as to as to when to bring in these different approaches i think there's a time along one's journey where it's, it is important to just totally open yourself to teachings and teachers to because you you're in that kind of soaking up sponge phase um but that can't go on forever um because mm -hmm. that kind of creates an arrested development so to speak you know a permanent childhood um and uh but at the set you know with <clears throat> thinking drawing an analogy with children you don't necessarily want children to do too much heavy lifting too early on because it's very damaging for their ego developments and uh sense of self as they develop and i think probably the same applies to people with spiritual practice i don't know it's, it's something i'm inquiring into what, what are your thoughts on it yeah well certainly waking down is at the mutuality end of that spectrum in fact the, the full name of that um organizational movement as i, I suppose it's more correctly described as waking down in mutuality and the, and the mutuality piece comes in um, not only between the um the, the students and the teachers or the adepts and the aspirants as they uh, call it in that work but also between um groups of aspirants and practitioners and you know part of the uh, the, the way of that work is um is participants sharing very vulnerably with uh with one another um and learning that practice of um you know being present of um of holding of being a container for other people's experience without um being tempted to sort of wade in and sort of tinker about with it and try and fix it and give a bit of advice and you know through that there's this um you know quite a uh a, a tender and very powerful container starts to happen wherein you know you can support with the support of, of other authentic souls you know do that very deep exploration get some appropriate feedback and develop some uh, reflective capability on on uh, on what's coming up and you know it hopefully ground that also in your and your spiritual development and your uh, personal practice not that you can always um separate those two things but it's, you know I, I suppose in uh, in my experience of waking down and i was very very fortunate to to come across it i feel eternally blessed that uh, that i became involved with that organization and you know i'd be uh, floundering still reading books about druidry i'm sure if if that hadn't come into my life but um you know the the, the awakening or the, the second birth as they call it you know was almost um in some ways secondary to that uh, deep and um, psychological more integrative um practice of becoming very very sensitized uh, to one's own uh, material so um 
a couple of things that that come up there for me um one is this um acknowledgement right from the outset that there that this waking down teaching system uh <clears throat> is not proposing to have some kind of checklist that if you tick all of the things along the way then that's it everything's done there's a kind of open-endedness to it um and and that's acknowledged right at the outset um whereas say that you know some of the more traditional uh spiritual traditions they 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 kind of do have this it's a bit yeah it's a bit like a sort of progression of things you need to tick off and when you get to the end that's it you're you've you've achieved something that they graduated you've graduated to what they might call full enlightenment or something mm-hmm. um and i think uh you know but i mean it's, i have I have had uh, way 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 smaller involvement in waking down than than you have um so you know do do a, uh, correct anything I, I'm, I'm saying here. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of make uh, drawing my own conclusions about what I've noticed about waking down. Um, and uh, and also that and an acknowledgement that the sort of the mutuality part of that is that the teachers are in this process themselves, and they're acknowledging that right at the outset too. That it's not like so you're. You're encountering teachers who nobody's pretending that they are the same as you in terms of what they know. I mean, they are further down the they've had they've clocked whatever more hours on the meditation map, you know, or or you know had uh, they're sort of more developed along these lines of uh, spiritual practice, um, and that's obviously why was it seek them out as uh, as teachers and mentors but at the same time they're openly admitting that their process is is, is an open-ended process there's no end to it and it's not like they've got to the end of something um uh and i think that uh that that sidesteps one of the problems where uh you you've kind of set up the teacher as some 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 completed perfect um masterpiece um and then when they start to do things which are what we might call you know human errors it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance because you know people the students are saying well this person's saying that they're absolutely perfect in every way but i can see that what they're di- some of the things they're doing are not perfect um but in the waking down c- context that's not a problem it's you know i've noticed you're doing something that for me seems unethical or whatever or immoral um and probably the teacher in that circumstance if in the waking down tradition or school uh, it's a bit early to call it tradition i suppose <laughs> might say <clears throat> well actually you know thank you for pointing that out that's a so I hadn't noticed that or, uh, you know, well, let's talk about that more. Um, is that, am I onto something? There? I think that's absolutely. So, you know, part of the work um, within Waking Down is about 
the sort of post second life, post second birth um, development piece. And there's, there's no sense of, a, of all of those that there is a fundamental um, shift, uh, the, the, the realization, the moving from the separate to the non separate identity, which, um, you know, no doubt chimes with, uh, with other um, interpretations of awakening or enlightenment. You know the, the the idea that there is that even that there is a, a a state of full enlightenment. You know feels pretty uncomfortable in the um, in the, the context of that work. And you know the teachers, like the students, are practicing mutuality. Uh, so they are not pretending to be perfect. They're showing up as their real and human selves. They themselves are are continually learning and growing and they are and they're accountable and it's part of sexuality practice and um, to take that difficult step of being able to articulate something to somebody um that, that doesn't feel quite right to you to sort of to, to call that person out in a in a completely, you know, non-confrontational and as skilled a way as you can. Although obviously, it doesn't always, uh, it doesn't always um, come out like that. And you know, the the, uh, the the teachers will sort of make it part of. I mean, it's not only the part of the the aspirant process to 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 take courage and to speak those things and to be absolutely authentic and feeding back to the teacher, but it's part of the teacher's practice to be able to, you know, to, to, uh, to take that feedback on board and to use that material uh, in order to continue to serve and to support and to continue in their own um, development. Now, you know, I guess like all of us, you know, I could give you some feedback and you might take that away and, uh, and reflect on it and, and maybe not agree with it. And, it, you know, the practice is not is not all about taking somebody else's um, perspective over your own, uh, but they've actually developed a, a practice called coconut yoga, which is where if you're being told consistently the same feedback uh, by different people, uh, then you uh, kind of you must surrender to that, you know. And, and the, the the coconut yoga is is like the uh, the coconut cracking. Um, on the stone that you know that you you sort of you, you realize that there's maybe a defense or a resistance there and you 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 surrender to that and allow that to to crack open so you know there is that expectation of of honesty of vulnerability of truth speaking as as uh, as actually core to the to the practice core to the system hmm yeah, coconut yoga. <clears throat> I heard Samuel Bonder um, talking about that um, fairly recently. Yeah, I like mm. it. What <clears throat> one of the things someone else I had a conversation with uh, recently said is uh, it's it's a it's a, a practice in itself to take what people say to you seriously, um, and let it in. And I, I think one of the things that's really helped me there with, and this was a, a kind of uh, a, a conceptual tool um, that was for me was was a psychoactive 
So I, I don't think of theories and concepts as kind of dry, abstract um, things that I'd have have no impact in life. You know, so I think it's important to explore theories and the mind and concepts and those kind of things because some of them can be life changing. And uh, one of the ones that was life changing for me was this. Uh, um, I mean, Ken, Ken Wilber was the first person I encountered who made this explicit, but it's something that goes um, back to Plato and people like that, that this, the acknowledgement that there's, there's a first person, second person and third person perspectives at play. And that those first person, second person and third person perspectives feature in the vast majority of the world's languages. So the suggestion there is that there's something very um, essential in these perspectives to the way humans perceive life and that they all, they have very different truth claims to them, validity claims, and that they, uh, they're also simultaneously, uh, they're simultaneous, that they, um, the first person, second person, and third person perspectives are always arising at the same time um so <clears throat> how that helps with interpersonal uh the kind of things you've been talking about and the uh, how that can alleviate conflict is that i could make a first person statement so i might say when you say such and such it makes me feel this yeah like i might say well when you talk about um uh something it make it i feel a bit anxious about that or something and so my first person statement of is is absolutely true that i am saying i feel that in my first person singular experience and um people can be allowed to make those first person statements and the truth of that be acknowledged but then then the when we start to talk further about that, we, it becomes a second person perspective is involved. So I'm bringing my first person truth, and we're exploring it as two people. There's a second person involved there. Um, th th more things might come out. We might disagree about that. We might say, "Well, I I can't quite understand why you're feeling that. I can't access that." Then if we bring in the third person perspective, which doesn't necessarily mean just a third person, it can mean bringing in lots of people or even comparing what we're talking about with some <clears throat> theoretical literature or, you know, the objective world. Um, so first person might be subjective, second person <coughs> intersubjective, and then third person is the objective world. If we bring in loads of people and they all start saying the same thing, then, uh, you know, we, we're onto something there. But if, if then when we, we bring in all of these other people and nobody else is saying the same, say, recognising what I'm saying, and it's only, it seems to only be my first person experience of having that, then, you know, that delivers some kind of information that we can act on too. So it's kind of separating out these perspectives can really help. The reason why that's psychoactive and transformative, that concept, is that all of a sudden you don't have to get embroiled in these things where I'm trying to make my first person experience 
I'm trying to claim that should be everybody else's experience. Um, yeah. Or if I'm having my own first person experience, it stops everybody taking the, a sort of third person view and just denying my first person experience, you know, saying, okay, well, everybody else isn't anxious here. So we don't know why you're feeling anxious. You shouldn't be feeling anxious. Um, so stop it and shut up and stop being a complete fool. You know, it's, it, it stops people from doing that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, the, that sort of wider group perspective in no way valid, invalidates your first person perspective. And that's really, I think that's really important. I guess the question is, you know, what are we trying to transform here? And, you know, there's, there's a kind of a real skill that develops on both sides. There's the skill of being able to articulate what that issue that's coming up is in relation to that other person. You know, and, you know, maybe you can articulate that in a skillful way or maybe, you know, you're just going to blurt it or maybe it's going to, you know, show up in, in whatever way it comes up. But actually, there's an in, it's an enormously courageous step just to be able to voice it or express it in, in whatever way um, you're able to do. And, you know, some will be more um, skilled and practiced at, at doing that than others. And then, you know, there is a, a, a similarly enormous skill on the part of the person who's receiving that feedback could be uh, that they're just receiving trans some kind of transparent projection. They're just hearing that that person is angry and triggered or whatever and it you know maybe really it's absolutely nothing to do with the person who's hearing it but to be able to um to hear it and to hold it and without the sort of um reactivity you know then and when you when you put those two things together you know that is a really powerful and transformative experience and you know in some ways you know we're not actually trying to transform that behavior we're not trying to say you know, that behavior is wrong and I need to tell you about it and you need to stop doing it. You know, the, the transformation is the willingness to be authentic and open and to speak one's own truth and the willingness to actually uh, receive and honor and respect that truth, even when, uh, you know, that, that might be directed towards you and the truth of the matter may be operating at very different levels and in, and in different um, sort of uh, dynamics, but it in no way sort of invalidates the truth of what's actually being spoken in that moment to that person. And it, it kind of catapults you into that perspective as well that, you know, we are two ordinary, uh, mortal, vulnerable, um, triggered, human beings and we're not ashamed of that and we're not trying to change it and we're not trying to tidy it up and we're not trying to make all that go away and make it okay so that we can be uh, serene and you know speak whatever we wish to speak and you know and, and we'll both be unaffected by it you know these human beings are getting into the rawness and, and the, the vulnerability of sharing that truth and they're doing that in the in the wider context of the more total experience uh, of one's own being, which is in in no way 
um, superior or at odds with that real, messy, interactive uh, human experience that, that, that's taking place in that moment. Well, that, and um, so you've raised uh, something which I was going to bring up that, <clears throat> so someone might be listening to this and they might think, okay, so this waking down stuff is basically people just sitting down as their egos uh, or personalities and just talking about their stuff all the time, giving each other feedback. And it's a bit like, sounds a bit like a, a coffee morning b- between friends, you know, um, and so I think what, uh, and that is, I mean, that, that is part of the waking down thing, which um, is one of the new things it brings to a spiritual practice, because this is basically psychotherapy done uh, amongst people, uh, normal people. So it's not like you've got a therapist there working with you. We are each other's therapists in that in that sense um and so w- working with our stuff you know inverted commas is very much part of it because those are the kinks which um you know restrict the flow of our awakening so to speak um but then as a as a as a uh, the other side of the the, the practice of, of waking down is something that you've described as the second birth which you haven't actually quite defined yet uh i know what you're talking about but just if someone was listening to this they might not quite know what that second birth entails uh, perhaps you could describe your own experience of that what that was like yeah i'd, I'd like to do that but just before we do i'd just like to comment on what you've um which is I suppose we'd be a little bit careful uh, speaking to myself and you know not speaking for the um, organization in any way about calling it therapy uh, it's not really supposed to be um, therapy and, and probably those things are regulated in the United States in a way that they're not regulated in the UK uh, so probably that's, that's the, the wrong way to describe it it's it, it's more about, I mean, sometimes it can feel uh, very uh, raw and it can feel very um, therapeutic. And, um, it, it, but really, it's more about being willing to show up and being willing to, to receive. And people are um, going through that process at very different stages of their own um, development and their own journey. And you know, sometimes it can feel a bit like a coffee morning. <laughs> I've certainly had those experiences. Uh, but when you're um, when you're doing that in the in the, the presence of sort of radically awakened individuals, then it in itself becomes a, a radically awakened and an awakening um, practice. Yeah. Okay. That's a good distinction. So it's more drawing upon our friendships i think as people human beings uh, <clears throat> uh turning our friendships into a transformational relationship perhaps uh rather i mean th- therapy is a little bit like um maybe 
yeah i uh, i was no i'm i'm not going to go there so well how, how does that sound is that if we can tweak <laughs> tweak it i think it's about being willing to be authentic in the company of others who have similarly made that commitment i mean this kind of vulnerable mutuality work has got its place you know don't try it at work <laughs> mm. you know, maybe don't really try it with your family depending on what kind of family circumstances that you're in i mean it's not just about you know giving one another direct feedback or being willing to sort of you know speak everything that might be um coming up you know this is this kind of work is done in a very particular context with uh with other people who have similar orientation and are committing to and are, and are doing that practice from the from the best of their own ability and with the intention of this supporting their own growth and awareness you know they're, they're coming into those spaces uh, one would hope and expect with open heart and um, each one showing up to the to the extent that it each is able each one to the extent that they are able being kind being respectful um, listening uh, holding as well as sharing and, and that in it, that in itself is really really powerful spiritual work and it is also um deeply integrative work i think that the key is that it's it's happening in that context of, of being part of a spiritual awakening um system even if that's not always obvious i guess in every space where you might see waking down practitioners uh, doing that kind of work and you know you, you see it more and more now as um with the COVID-19 situation you know lots of different groups are sort of springing up online and um you know becoming more open places where people can go and check in and spend a bit of time together so um yeah I think I um I'm, I'm, I'm keen to kind of uh tune up uh you know this i the, what what this <clears throat> what this community work is i mean I, I think this is a really important thing that it's a central part to the waking down thing is the community of practitioners um and again you know this is comes in with this first second and third person perspectives that the first person thing is your own individual practice the third person might be the system or teaching that you are practicing but then in between those the first person second person perspective the, that that smallest unit and the biggest you've got this kind of bridge of the second person and it's the community and in buddhism you have the buddha the dharma and the sangha this is the sangha so <clears throat> this the community uh is explicitly put out there as a transformational container um <clears throat> in its uh, in and of, of itself that it's not you're not just 
there with people doing the same thing and you're by circumstances you just happen to be together it's people saying right well we are together as human beings we uh are being as authentic as we can um and we're also doing this in a container where you have this phrase green lighting where Mm -hmm. um i think basically says you know that uh you are okay as far as i'm concerned and whatever you are going to present as long as it's legal (laughs) you know it's we're not uh, saying you know murdering and raping and violence is welcome uh obviously but you know beyond that um you can authentically express yourself in this group of people or if it was just two of you working together you know a person would say to me i'm giving you the green light to be yourself and i think so much of life outside of that container people don't give each other green lights to be themselves we we expect other people to to be a certain way or we feel the pressure to be a certain way from other people and there's something liberating and transformational in and of itself to just be in a group of people uh who have given you that green light to be authentic and show up just how you want to be as a human being um so i think there's that's kind of a a distinction between that and therapy you know therapy is 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 a is a a moment where you work with another person or another group of people really to get to the you know do deep work on something you know whereas this is a little bit more um it's less structured you know i mean it, it it has the rules of engagement as you're saying which is actually a printed out sheet of rules isn't it with um perhaps you we could talk I about haven't, i haven't seen that i think that's the later okay <laughs> well maybe that maybe that doesn't even exist <laughs> but, <clears throat> i think they have one in their uh, trillium awakening you know for yeah. example which is a sort of offshoot of this waking down thing yeah. um <clears throat> okay so i just wanted to kind of tweak that concept uh, just for myself and also for anyone who's listening to this that they're not uh <clears throat> you know as you said this isn't therapy in the normal sense of the word it's people just authentically being personalities human beings you know yeah. but there's a, yeah i was going to say that there's, there's an energetic element to it and anybody who's meditated in groups of people i guess if you're sensitive to those kind of things you know you might experience that meditation kind of feels more powerful it feels more intense when you're meditating with other people and there's something that's similar is happening and an energy transmission between without wanting to be too sort of wah-wah or whatever you say about it you know there is a a, a real transmission that's happening uh, between those people but it's but in the end you know it's an exploration an exploration that's happening uh, in mutuality with other people and you know what is spirituality if it's not an exploration <laughs> you know and what exploration can you possibly do better alone than you can do with you know groups of other um practitioners experts like-minded selves. I mean, you can see it in any, you know, any sort of research institution or establishment. No one's trying to do anything on their own. Uh, this is the sort of the collaboration and the and the sharing is where the is where the growth is really coming in. Mm. Yeah, 
I mean, obviously, many minds are better than one. You know, it's it's just a simple equation, isn't it? Really, mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> many parts. Yeah. So <laughs> the uh, yeah. So I've done so not in the waking down context, but I've done some of this deep, authentic, relating work before. Uh, sometimes on weekend retreats. And I've come away from that. I've gone to see friends who weren't part of that. And they've been like, whoa, what has happened to you? You know, I, I, I'm obviously transmitting some deep level of authenticity um, coming out of that. So it's like, you know, people have said, wow, you know, what's, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm feeling something off you, which is uh, really powerful and, and amazing. And they're kind of, really start asking questions about what I've been doing, you know, so it's so that's speaking to what you're saying about this kind of energetic thing that gets created. Yeah. Um, so then it, uh, so all of this happens within this wider context of what you've been calling the second birth, uh, which is, um, you know, transpersonal uh, level of our identities as individuals and a collective. Um, so it's the kind of uniting this very personal, authentic showing up you've been describing, uh, married to this wider context of the transpersonal. Um, could you talk a little bit about your own experience with this second birth awakening and what it means and, and how that's fed into your this authentic relating work you've been doing? Yeah, I can try to do that. So I struggle a little bit with the language of um second birth that there are there are a couple of things really i i suppose i i struggle also with that with the separation of the aspirant adept identity you know i, I don't really feel like a, an aspirant in anything but i don't really feel like an adept either and although i can you know point to um to particular moments a particular um shift in my um, own awareness, you know, can I layer on the, uh, the the concept of the second birth to that? You know, I'm not I'm not sure that anything ever happened that felt like a second birth. And um, I guess my in, in waking down, uh, there is an acknowledgement that some people will have a sort of, they, I think they call them um, oozers and poppers. <laughs> Right. So some people will some people will uh, have this um, experience of like the of a membrane popping almost like a sort of balloon bursting and you know the the separate um, identity then uh, merges with um, the non-separate identity and you know that that's a very clear moment that might be described as second birth and you know other people you know over time just sort of relax more and more into that new state of uh, of consciousness identification but I, I can certainly um talk about my own experiences and sort of where i where i feel i am but you know i i, I guess i see that as an ever-evolving um process and you know i'm in that sort of i'm in a, a growth a growth mindset where you know i, I expect that this will be a lifelong uh, at least a lifelong uh, exploration and uh, and journey of growth. Well, perhaps we could 
rather than framing it in this um, second birth thing, which is a little bit binary, you know, it's kind of like uh, AD and BC, you know, so a B, yeah, sort of bef- before second birth and after second birth. Perhaps we could say, you know, how <laughs> how did um, the transpersonal parts of your identity start to become more vivid? Oh, that's a really um, that's a really difficult question, and you know, I in some ways I feel like that's something that's always maybe been present in me that um i've come to experience in a, in a different way and in some ways i feel like you know that context has really stealthily sort of crept in um over time and more recently you know i feel like having spent probably the best part of 20 years trying to tease apart the personal and the non-personal the you know, the imminent from the transcendent, you know, in recent years, you know, that sort of has snapped back together so radically that, you know, I can hardly even work out what this work is, is really about anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in a bit of a, a wilderness state with that in my own, in my own process. But I, I could, uh, I guess I could talk about the, the stages through which that's uh, that's happened so yeah I, th- I think <clears throat> from talking to other people in my own personal experience I think uh there is a kind of cyclical perhaps it's more of a spiraling so it does it has some direction to it but it's an ever-increasing and widening spiral of you know the sort of transpersonal and personal parts of ourselves being very clearly separating and differentiating and then coming together and then parting again and coming together in a breaking yeah. wider open and then healing, uh, coming together even deeper and more of a unity and then breaking further <clears throat> apart. So, you know, I don't, I don't see this um, journey as a kind of, it's gone from A to B and that's all there is. Yeah. I think that that's really a nice way to describe it. And certainly, you know, from the right at the beginning of my um, fledgling spiritual awareness and sense of the mystical, such as it was, you know, this, this sense of, uh, of this as a, as a spiral, as a spiral of growth, you know, really um, feels, very, um, feels very right. And, it, you know, I, I agree that it's not a, linear process that there are sort of oscillations along the way you know I was uh, voicing um, very uh, clear uh, recognition of, sort of non-dual however you want to call it unity and consciousness way before I had any experience that could be you know paralleled on to the and um, to the second birth it took me uh, a few years to actually ask for my second birth confirmation and even while I was having that confirmation and even you know for some years after it you know I wasn't completely sure you know if you sort of scratched away at that experience I wouldn't have been able to really completely confidently uh, say that I was that I had 
had that fundamental um, shift into non-separate consciousness. You know, now I would say that I'm very stable in my realization that I know that being is only in every um, aspect of my uh, self and my being, that I'm not sort of going around in any kind of cosmic uh, blissed out state. You know, my life and awareness, I think, is uh, is painfully, <laughs> is painfully ordinary. Um, and yet, you know, the and yet the sacred resonates in everything. And you know, I guess one of the the things that I'm continually sort of playing around with at the moment is, you know, where is bliss? What is bliss? You know, where is well-being? You know, am I um in this sort of constantly um open, exalted state? Uh, no. <laughs> is there an do I, you know, often feel anxious and uh, and disturbed, and is that a a, 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 a sort of almost a sort of um, a, a fixed and permanent state? Uh, yes, you know, am I okay with that? Yes, I am a human being. I'm a I am a mortal. Is there an underlying sense of the of the okayness of of everything, even if things are obviously not not wholly okay in my particular little corner of the universe yes you know do I experience bliss you know when I'm lying in bed first thing in the morning and I can hear the bird song and you know just that slightest subtle breeze through an open window you know yes you know all of all of that is uh, all of that is true um well one of the one of the uh, kind of well, symptoms isn't really the right word for it. Characteristics of uh, this kind of transpersonal awakening is is a sense of feeling at home in life. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, our our personal, our small little personal uh egos for want of a better word um quite often can feel like a an, an a stranger in this life or an alien or a little vulnerable little speck that's just sort of hanging out there and uh, all exposed and and very worried about that um but then there's this wider context of us being nature herself and then also something utterly transcending of everything, which we might call formless awareness or pure consciousness or something, um, that those two sides of our transpersonal nature are fundamentally not at odds with this experience of this moment, with life, with death, with chaos, with order, you know, all of these kind of polarities that tend to really throw us off as personalities because they are enormous forces but then these enormous forces are from a transpersonal perspective part of ourselves as well and part of everyone else and and then it, it kind of takes some of the some of the wind out of the sails of um uh the fear of life 
at, at a very deep level. I mean, it's not to say fear is snuffed out, but um, so what you're describing, even though that sounds very ordinary, um, you know, it's making me think of the Zen saying, ordinary mind is the way that there's our ordinary minds and our ordinary bodies, our ordinary emotions and hearts and identity is infused as a matter of fact with these transpersonal parts of ourselves. Um, and there's no effort required in making those something because they are given. Um, and, um, and I think one of the things, one of the, the great gifts to our personal selves, our smaller selves from these transpersonal parts of ourselves is this feeling of being at ease um, with life. Not, we're not in opposition to it. I think not at ease is not the right word. I think just being, being in opposition to life, being in opposition to other people, other organisms, physical forces, planets and supernovas and all of that kind of stuff that, um, well, it's, it is difficult to talk about because it, this, we're really into the world of paradox here. So everything I've said is also untrue <laughs> from the, you know, we, we do simultaneously live with pain and unease and fear. And, you know, those are parts of being a mammal. Um, and uh, perhaps one of the things I think I really liked when I came across this uh, waking down stuff is this uh, acknowledgement of the core wound that at the center of life is this wound and this sort of dissatisfaction, which is not, not a wound to be healed. It's the kind of motivation of evolution or something. I mean, it's a, yeah. could you talk a bit about that? How that's. Yeah. So the, the core wound, um, and I'm sure that there are others um, and in the waking time movement, he could speak about this much more eloquently than I. I'm not a spokesperson for, for that organisation, but I'll do my best. I can certainly tell you. Some, well, no, I mean, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm more interested in your, yeah, how that um, perspective has informed your life. I'm not, no, I mean, I'm, I don't. Mm. If someone wants to find out about waking down, they can just read a book, you know, or go to some website. But I mean, I'm more interested in yeah. what what your how this is for you. Yeah. So the so the, the core wound is a, an acknowledgement that in every human that every human being is both um, an individual, ordinary, mortal, little person going about their and um, their individual um, lives and at the same time um, that person is the totality of being and some people would, would say as you said before that you know that these things our minds our emotions our, uh, our ordinary lives are, are in, our lives are infused with <coughs> divinity or with the unmanifest or with consciousness or you know however you want to um, describe that you know for me those things are not it, it feels more true to say you know rather than that those things are infused with that essence that those that those things are that you know my poor little you know frightened anxious self 
is the untouchable, timeless, vast totality uh, of being. You know, there's there's no part of that totality that needs to be, you know, cleaned up or taken out or, you know, know, humoured in any way. Like, you know, this is it. This is it. The living fire of existence. And, you know, we are, well, you know, I I won't get drawn down that that rabbit hole. But that that intuitive understanding in each one, perhaps not a conscious understanding, uh, but that intuitive understanding of being both the ordinary mortal soul and being the the infinite um, totality of existence, it is in some ways a sort of crucifixion. It's a it's a very it's a tight and it's an uncomfortable fit. And there is a, a continual a continued experience of that individual one um of sort of, of disturbance, of something not being quite right, of needing more, as you said before, of not quite feeling at at home here, at not, you know, being to being able to dispersed uh, into uh, into infinite bliss or whatever, but actually being trapped here in this container, knowing as a you know as an individual ego that uh, that, that that you are here in a moment in time, uh, as is everything that you uh, that you know and love, and that gives rise to this this core wound of existence, a, a sense that that all isn't well that I have to do more that you know that, that something needs to be fixed and within the the, uh, the waking down work the point is not to try and heal the core wound you know in, in fact you can't heal the core wound but what you can do uh, is to become more aware more conscious of it and uh, and as it so that there is a there is a way in which you kind of relax into it, so that you're not quite so at the mercy of it. That you become a a sort of bigger and a more relaxed container within which you know all of that stuff is is uh, is able to flow, and that you're able to to be okay even while all of that stuff is, is going on fundamentally okay yeah it makes me think of um sacrifice that uh <clears throat> i think you know sacrifice being related to the word sacred and the act of letting go of uh g- giving up your own bliss or even well-being or or need to uh, shore yourself up from vulnerability um you know that's a kind of a sacrificial act and <clears throat> and i think you know christianity some of the abrahamic religions have got better language for that than some of the eastern ones uh eastern religions i i feel and um uh yeah i, I i've i've come to really appreciate having spent most of you know my adult life exploring eastern religions i've really come to appreciate some of the unique strengths of the abrahamic religions um 
you know christianity islam judaism and and some of the language around the sacrifice and stuff seems very vivid there um yeah yeah i, I haven't thought about it like that before but actually as you say it you know i can really get that sense of sacrifice i mean you know what do we do do we allow these things that we're feeling do we let them be or do we spend our lives on the run from them you know trying to block them out with meditation with tv with food you know whatever your uh, chosen distraction might be and you know i'm not saying you know indulge it i'm not saying you know create a story from it but you know at some point we need to be able to be with it at some point you know we need to be able to to be ourselves and not just those bits of ourselves that sort of feel okay and those emotions that you know we rather enjoy uh, more than others but to actually be with our real selves to be our real selves and to experience ourselves and, and all of that all of that means so um <clears throat> One thing we haven't explored much uh, so far is um, you know, we touched on it with the Qigong, but some of these, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, emotions, psychology, um, you know, uh, transpersonal stuff, meditation, but, we, but uh, not a, a lot about the body, um, our bodies, um, you know, we talked about qigong but you know how in your life um what other ways of working with your physical presence you know have have you done or found useful yeah so um i've done various things and you know right now i'm at a place where i really feel like i'm coming back to that kind of work and if there's a place where i really want to put my um, energy and the sort of phase ahead it's in physicality and in movement uh, so I've got some um, particular pieces of um, early childhood uh, trauma in my um, background and I guess in the beginning uh, some of these therapies uh, were trying to, to work through some of the physical and, and emotional effects of that and I first um, did that work through a combination of um, hands-on healing and deep tissue massage. I was working with a, a, a really uh, skilled um, intuitive therapist in Liverpool. I don't think she had any kind of um, psychotherapeutic uh, qualifications, but you know, she was sort of bold enough to, to venture into areas that most therapists would have, uh, would have, would have uh, wisely uh, backed away from. And we used to, uh, we used to meet for an hour and a half once a week. And we'd really sort of, um, you know, get into quite a, a deep exploration of, of what was, uh, what was up, what was um, happening. And then uh, she'd do physical work with me for, um, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes of, you know, this sort of deep um, tissue massage and uh, followed by hands-on healing. And, uh, you know, I found that um, process, the combination of the talking therapy, and it wasn't really 
I wouldn't even I wouldn't describe it as psychotherapy really or of um counseling. She was very energetically intuitive and could she would intuit things that were were that I had never spoken and would speak them <laughs> directly to me in ways that were kind of quite um shocking and brought things up that were were very, very um hidden um but then through that, through the work, through my being able to affirm and to, to verbalize, I think there's a, when we're thinking about body work, you know, let's put verbalizing things, you know, right at the, right at the um, center of that. Um, and then through the, through the body work, there was a sort of real, relaxation into my physical being that I had never really experienced before. And at, at one point through that, that therapy, I had this sense of having this big, um, like a, a like a heavy weight boxing belt uh, around my middle, and that belt was my sense of identification with the, with the trauma and who I was as a result of the trauma. And I realised that I was absolutely wedded to my identity as a traumatised person and in that I felt the belt unlock and drop and it was very physical I felt it physically drop to the floor so that's that's an example of the ways in which that kind of physical work has helped to to open up my process and, I, and I'm not suggesting for one minute that you know that you can't deeply spiritually evolve while you are carrying trauma. I am still carrying a lot of trauma. I'm carrying it physically in my body and I'm carrying it emotionally and, and through my life, you know, I will continue that process of, of unlocking, of healing, of unraveling, but that stuff will never ever go away. My relationship to it may change. But there is something about the loosening of not the opening up, the physical relaxation, and um, that 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 makes embodiment possible uh, in a in a way that it may not have been possible before. And um, I could talk about a, a, another experience, which is of um, bioenergetic therapy. So this uh, was, I think this was um, well. I used to to um, drive out to um, to see this delightful old um, doctor. He was a, a, an elderly um, guy who trained with Alexander Lowen, who I, I think is, uh, is the founder of bioenergetic therapy. And it was, it's a, 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 a sort of therapy which, although there is some talking, it's, it's really about um, going through physical um, movements and facial expressions to re to visit or to revisit particular um, strong emotions in a way of sort of regaining the, the flow and the release of those emotions. So you know, for example, uh, he'd say, "Okay," we'd be talking. He'd say, "How are you feeling?" And I'd say, "I'm feeling fear." And he'd say, "Okay, show me the fear." And so I sort of go, "We go, no, come on, really, like exaggerate, exaggerate the expression of the fear." Show me what the body is doing, and I, I, you know, I really contract into it. And then he says, "Okay, release it just a tiny, 
tiny bit and then go back into the flinch and then release the tiny, tiny little bit. And then, you know, through these um, exercises, um, I found them incredibly, I found them ravaging, to be honest. I used to, I used to leave there after an hour or so and I'd just be in absolute um, pieces. But through that work, you know, actual body memories would be released. So I had a, um, a memory, you know, just seemingly random, but it must have been one of my earliest memories. Um, so he said to me, look, while, while this is happening, sometimes you can have body memories. I said, I think I've just had one. And I've, I've remembered being tiny, uh, under four, really small, and being lost in a supermarket. Um, and that had actually it turned out that actually I said to him, do you, know, do you think that was real? He said, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure that was real. And it turned out that actually had happened. So, you know, it's very interesting the way that these traumas and memories are, are still held in the body, even as real memories, not just the way that they sort of armor you and, and lock you down, but they kind of they live here in the cells and through that work, you know, they can actually be released and and that process of releasing for me is that process of opening up the kind of practice that we were talking about in relation to the um to the mutuality practice of actually being able uh to be vulnerable to be to being able to show up and not being you know continually defended and armored and 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 locked down he said to me when i, I first went into his um into his therapy rooms, uh, it, it was a really strange little place. It was just a front door. It wasn't marked by anything in this old sort of Victorian house. And I sort of knocked on the door and nobody answered. And in the end, you know, somebody came out and I kind of went up and went through this up this winding staircase. And there was nobody there to meet me. There was no sort of receptionist or anything. It was just like a, this little couch on a landing. So I sat on it. And eventually came out, and it was him, and he was just very sort of unassuming, but uh, but obviously a very skilled and an authentic guy. And in my first encounter with him, he said to me, "What do you want to say to me?" And I said, um, "Help." And he said, "Okay, say that then." <laughs> <laughs> Help. He said, "No, really, say it. Really shout it at me. Really." scream it in my face help and the gulf between him asking me to do that and me being able to do it you know might as well have been a mile wide you know it was like a sort of it was a you know petrified is the right word you know not petrified as in fearful but petrified as in turned to stone you know that ability of me to to verbally and physically express even you know what I what I wanted to ask for was completely unavailable to me it was a, it was a, a brick wall uh, and, and the reason I sort of tell you that is because you know that ability to get beyond that brick wall is is what these various uh, ways of, of therapy really has 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 done for me yeah that's um <clears throat> i like the fact you've brought up um languaging 
this stuff and how difficult it is um yeah but also how important because language so it's 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 to do with opening up and unlocking stuff because if you can put a feeling uh, an emotional feeling or a physical feeling into words you can then communicate that i mean obviously you're communicating non-verbally to people your state all the time but there's another level of communication uh with people which is to do with language and and also the way our brains are set up um you know my limited understanding of it is that actually turning inarticulate things into language um is a really important um neurological activity too um so it's quite it's interesting because one of the reasons why i bring it up as interesting is that quite often it's quite common for people to say you know words are bad um and you know just stick with the feeling uh or or you know, don't make it into words or don't you it's something like it's almost like you're you're um it's something blas blasphemous about turning something raw into words um but i think ultimately that's an unnecessary limitation and 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 a closing down of this opening process and and i think one of the th ways i see um you know becoming more at ease in one's relationship to life and ourselves is is this uh flowing in and out um of information and energy and stuff and that any way you can help facilitate lubricate this kind of in and out movement that creates more of this sense of um harmony naturalness authenticness and that this kind of stagnation happens when you you close down channels that of this moving in and out and i think it's kind of just a wise approach to try and work on all of these different levels at the same time because they're all they all have their unique kind of vessels of input and outputs you know um and the other thing that uh came up for me when you were saying that is that working with this with the body and emotions and how they get locked up inside our bodies is not necessarily about right you do some work on your body and then you fix that problem done you know it's like done and dusted um that there's this continual opening uh and an acknowledgement that you're probably never going to get to the bottom of any of this stuff and that's okay that it's the the opening uh is is a very important thing continuous opening and expanding but also changing your relationship to tr you know trauma held in the body or um and making it less problematic your relationship to 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 yourself uh and the uncomfortable parts of our our identities um yeah and in a way that's kind of the only power we have in life <clears throat> is a, is is about how we relate to life and ourselves um that's that's what we can change and transform it's like good luck trying to change transform 
everything in the life and your body and everything to conform with your ideal picture of things you know um that yet yeah, it's, it's kind of a misplaced activity in a way to try and do micromanage the unmanageable you know it's um yeah yeah it's, sort of, it's uh, similar to what you said earlier about the qigong being the step forward from the meditation and how you actually bring that practice then uh, to life in 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 the real and in, in in the waking moments of your life and i guess the, the verbalization of things actually you know takes what's on the inside and gets it out there it it actually makes it real it's a it's a movement of energy but also as you say it's a it's a willingness to take ownership of that it's a willingness to to show up uh, i suppose as ken wilber might say and you know to actually stand up in your in your own shoes and say you know this is this is how it is i've um done a lot of psychotherapy sessions over the years with um uh, the psychotherapist I work with and sometimes it'll be a whole hour of me unable to say something you know and, and he's just yeah. very very carefully and generously just coaxing he's not doing the heavy lifting for me you know it's like I've got to do that but and then it will be like maybe right towards the end of the hour session I might be able to actually say what I really need to say or want to say, but I couldn't bear, I could wait. it was inaccessible to me. It was like, I'm fumbling around in the dark with this. Yeah. And then something about actually saying, and these are not like profound truth. These are, some of these are very, very normal mundane things. Um, but actually finding that thing to say that's, that, that encapsulates this un inarticulate feeling is incredibly transformative and powerful um yeah and it's a small thing you know if someone was looking from the outside they'd be like wow god you know that was a boring hour um <laughs> you know and you know what he said at the end was like so you know but it, that but from my first person experience something very powerful has happened there you know, and it's yeah. happened through that second person relationship with my therapist, you know, who's been that mirror for me and has helped draw this stuff out. Um, it's a small thing, but it's a very, very tender thing. And sometimes hidden under, you know, not only in unconsciousness, but it can be hidden under many layers of shame. Mm. Yeah, so much of it is getting down into shame you know <laughs> saving face you know is such a big thing uh i mean you know we're english and uh that's very much part of our culture is you know saving face um and shame is uh uh it's it's difficult and um but that's that's the shame is that is the dragon sitting on that massive mound of treasure you know yeah yeah it's really interesting thing um so um the so the one thing i want to say was how you know that these conversations i'm having with people all of this stuff that i'm interested in is is about this holistic approach uh, and many leveled 
um, weaving mm -hmm. things together and that you know what I'm hoping we're transmitting through this conversation so anyone who might be listening is that it to, to help create this kind of flow in and out flow and movement that um, to work on all of these different levels gives you um, well levels might not be the right word dimensions or aspects of our being and our identity you know um, gives us the best chance of actually uh, doing something amazing with our lives you know that if you if uh, if you kind of hunker down in one particular aspect in a way there's a kind of a, the danger of that is this kind of stagnation and death um yeah so um it's something i feel very passionate about and that's kind of what i want to put out there into the world is that you know this holistic thing is a good thing <laughs> so, um so perhaps we could just you know before we finish explore what what are some of the things that you wish you'd learned earlier in your life you know so say let's just say someone's listening to this um you know they're, they're interested in becoming um well just you know going deeper into who they are and who other people are and what life's about um you know they 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 naturally are someone who likes to integrate lots of different things and they see the sense in um you know working with their body their heart their mind their spirit you know and all that stuff what are some of the things that you wish you'd known earlier that you think could have helped you? Um, yeah. A couple of things, you know, one is um, I wish I'd known to completely trust my own discernment and judgment in, in every single um, situation. You know, I've, I suppose if anybody could accuse me of anything, it's been a bit too eclectic in the the uh, in the spiritual path and, and things that have interested me. But you know, I I don't feel that that's been a sort of random exploration, and I've sort of honed in on a you know two or three sort of core teachers, teachings, you know, path, whatever you want to call them, that have that really speak to me and I find very um, complimentary. And when I sort of look back at my journey to sort to, to position myself, to sort of align myself with, with those particular teachings, I can see myself, you know, very quickly ruling things out um, that didn't fit, pursuing things that I intuitively sensed with signposting me on to something that really resonated with uh, with me and you know choosing things you know not because they happened to be there or they you know looked like they could return something to me but that I had a, a very natural inner compass that never that, is, that has never failed and um, to to guide that journey in the right direction. I suppose my, my first piece of advice would be, you know, trust trust yourself absolutely and implicitly. You know, trust 
the mind. Don't let anybody tell you that the mind's not part of your um, spiritual experience or not part of your top toolkit of ways to uh, to navigate this world. But first and foremost, trust the body because the body is the body is speaking to you all the time, and the body is telling you uh, when you're onto the when you're onto the right um, thing. I suppose the other thing that I wish I'd known is that you know if, you, if you're serious about this work, then you've got to be prepared to suffer. And if you are suffering, and if things are looking messy, it doesn't mean that things are going wrong. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're that you've that you've sort of come off the path. You know that. And, and, and the other thing that I would say is that you know in 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 healing that suffering, you know, you don't need to try and fix it. Just becoming more aware of what's revealing itself to you, just sort of holding that in the light of your non-judging, compassionate awareness is the lubrication that will oil the knot and start to help them to unravel. Those are the two things. And I suppose the the other thing is that, you know, it's your journey. There's no blueprint for it. You know, in every single one of the mystery traditions, you know, the the world religions and the most esoteric forms, there is not a blueprint for your awakening. Only you can find your own way. Yeah, I think that that ties in very much with um, where our the leading edge of our culture is at the moment. This kind of postmodern world we live in uh, is very much about um, well, and you know what? It also is called the meta modern or post postmodern you know basically you know this contemporary moment that that we're in culturally is is more oriented towards unique an appreciation of of uniqueness um and uh that there's not so much focused on the the one size fits all off the shelf kind of path which was a little bit more associated with the pre-modern era um you know of, of traditional spirituality that there was like a little bit like uh and and you know moving into the sort of modern <clears throat> modernist era too that there's this kind of almost like an assembly line oh you know like a fat the traditions little being a little bit like factories producing um very similar products people people being the products of these factories and just churning out um you know dolls uh mannequins that are kind of very very similar and uh that kind of doesn't really sit well with contemporary people um you know who, who have absorbed Moder- you know, the insights of modernity and postmodernity you know that they're, they're kind of 
uniqueness individuality makes sense to people now in a way that it didn't in the past uh, and i think mm. that you know at the same time you know i i, I don't think you know you or i are promoting this kind of sole focus on your own truth that you know you you just it, it doesn't totally lie with with us as individuals to make everything unique that uh to do with ourselves i mean there's something extremely the, the far end of that is is extreme narcissism you know so uh and that's that's not going to lead you anywhere either so i mean there's this kind of quite a, a nuanced harmony between your your own uniqueness and the, and the truth and validity of that but not throwing away what's come before with with the power of the the insights of pre-modernity and traditionalism and modernity um yeah that's very nicely clarified you know if you try and if you try and do it yourself you can be floundering around for a long long time you know well, in a way it's, it's, it's like working it's like re trying to reinvent the wheel um yeah you know we don't you don't need to reinvent the wheel but then the wheel can do all sorts of things other than be used for wheelbarrows and cars perhaps you know there's to extend that metaphor a bit um so is there um you know lastly any if, if people want to find out more about things you do or things you care about where might you direct people uh, so i don't hold myself out as a teacher or anything like that but people are very welcome to contact me i do um on some very small scale just that do work with individuals and uh, small groups when i'm asked to do that so i'm happy for you to um you know put my email address or whatever um out with this route that's fine and um, i guess the resources that have really been important to me over the years that i could have, could point people to um one is uh waking down and the the founder of that samuel bonder that i've worked very very closely with over the last 10 years um or for more of a um community field you could look at uh, trillium awakening which is uh, the the offshoot of um waking down you know i i um i follow um christopher harish wallace um who has the um facebook site and um, tantric yoga now and um, he offers loads of free uh, foundational practices and information about um shiva shavic tantrism which uh, is, is really worth um having a look at um Cynthia Bourgeau and the contemplative Christianity movement uh, is a is a very, very um rich source for me. Um and Ajashanti uh, is a teacher that I enjoy listening to and again lots of um free resources available on the internet and uh, some good books that are really worth reading as well. So that's kind of a I suppose that's the constellation of my particular orientation. But you know, I'd love to hear from anyone as well if, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch. Yeah, I, I will. I'll put your email address in the show notes. 
Um, but perhaps you, you could, could you say it uh, verbally? So just if someone didn't check out the show notes, they might be able to contact you somehow. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's Elf Nanny, <laughs> E-L-V-E-S-N-A-N-N-Y, as in the nanny of elves, which is an anagram of my name, almost, um, at hotmail.com. Cool. Um, yeah, and I, I also very much, uh, you know, endorse those people you've spoken about um, uh, too. They're, they're teachers that I really enjoy their, their work as well. I, I thoroughly recommend them. Mm. Um, right. Well, th- thank you so much um, for your generosity in spending this time here and sharing your story. Um, and uh, may it benef- benefit anyone who hears it. Um, mm, amen. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs>